Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programmers podcast, helping programmers to become software engineers. This time the topic is responding to change, and it's really about understanding the requirements of a software system. Uh, because I've spent a lot of time recently talking to a lot of different software engineers who work on different projects at different places, um, in different sort of composition of teams. And the most frequent problem that I hear is a problem related to ensuring that they are building the right thing. Now, this doesn't always come out in terms of uh, you know, understanding that it's the requirements that uh, are at fault. Um, what usually happens is you hear something about like, the customer doesn't know what they want, the customer keeps changing their mind, the customer can't uh, make a decision, you know, the customer is fickle, that sort of thing. And I think that you know, these actually come down to not having a good shared agreement between the engineer and the customer on what the thing is that you're trying to build. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole field of software requirements because it's a very big field with a lot of different uh, issues and a lot of uh, nuance. You've got the problem where there are uh, tacit requirements that the um, the customer just assumes will be done or doesn't think to vocalise because they are the way that other software they have seen works or that they are the way that things are done in their field and they don't feel the need to explain it. You have the problem of you know the difference traditionally described as functional and non-functional requirements, what the software should do versus how it should do it, uh, and then whether or not the uh, customers are the people who are actually um, you know, capable of uh, elucidating the non-functional requirements. You know, should it be your customer's responsibility to tell you what the security stance of your application should be? There's a lot going on. And then there's, you know, how do you record them? How do you keep them up to date? All that kind of stuff. I could do a bunch more episodes on this. I may well do over the, um, you know, over the next few episodes. But what I want to focus on is how this idea of understanding what it is that you should be building and this idea from the Agile Manifesto of responding to change, how these two things are correlated. So we've got this idea that the customer keeps like changing their mind. They're a fickle or capricious uh, person who whenever you show them something, they either say, no, that's not what I wanted, or that's not what I meant, or, you know, shoot, can we do this instead? There are various different reasons for that to happen. And digging into these gives us tools for um, dealing with those reasons, and therefore for coming up with a happier interaction, one where we do embrace change. We say, okay, like, we understand why you want something else than what we've shown you, and here's what we're going to do about it. So the first one uh, is that maybe the customer just doesn't know what is possible. You know, there are still uh, fields out there, and I particularly see this a lot in academia, where a lot of the work is not actually computerized. Yes, people are using email. Yes, people are using word processors um, or like typesetting software like LaTeX in um, many scientific disciplines, but also word processors in many other disciplines. You know, plenty of journals 
will accept a doc file uh, or a docx file as a manuscript submission. So yes, all of the sort of you know text sharing is done on the computer, and you know the meetings uh, hosted on Zoom or Teams or whatever. That's not the same as saying that the work, the actual research that's being done, is computerized, or that the software that is available supports the automation or the improvement enrichment of the research process itself and there are plenty of um, examples of fields out in the real world uh, where this is true too you know i remember um and i will put a link to this in the show notes i remember that there was a program called the computer program now this came out like shortly after I was born, I think. So it would have been early 1982. Um, and I am already 40 years old, so that tells you something about when I was born. Um, so obviously I watched it on repeat. And this was a BBC programme designed to improve literacy about computers among the general public. So just to say... Here are what computers are, here are what they can do, and also here is how you can make them do the things that you need them to do. So here's how you can write software with BASIC that implements a database or automates some uh, maths or um, drives a a robot. So, you know, we were doing Internet of Things uh, even back then, but importantly, we were also talking uh, and... I don't remember which episode this was, so I'll link to um, either the complete collection or to episode one, and it's a six-episode series, I think, so it's not going to take long to watch through. But one of the they they had these um, futurologists. I think one of them was like a producer or an executive producer on the show, who would talk about what it meant for computers to enter the world of work and to you know, improve automation of both uh, physical and of um, knowledge work. And in a lot of cases, these predictions were well off base. You know, there's uh, books from the era saying that would be down to a 20-hour work week within two decades because you know, computers would uh, take over all the work and the rest of us would have nothing to do. Well, they didn't in, uh, They didn't sort of imagine the rise of the uh, computer programmer as a profession. They also didn't imagine the rise of the social media manager as a pre- profession, another profession that is purely um, enabled by the existence of the computer. We have just invented more work for ourselves, uh, so we haven't reduced the working week as a result of introducing computers. One of these like futurology talks talked about the automation of agriculture and uh, particularly of uh, arable so like crop agriculture and they talked about having um a robotic planter harvester so if you imagine all of the things that you use a tractor for then typically like the tractor is the engine at the front and you put a tool on the back you hitch it up to, to some tool and it um you know, plows or it plants or it harvests or, or um, and then you get combine harvesters which merge some of these functions together and combine harvesters 
I think were invented around World War Two. I think they already existed by the end of World War Two. Um, so the the idea of like computerizing this was that the tractor could have like multifunction sort of Swiss Army knife things, and it could react to conditions. So you know what's going on with the soil, what's going on with the weather. It could react to uh, economic conditions. What are people paying for, or what uh, are the trends in what people are paying for? What will be valuable by the time it has grown? And finding some automated uh, you know, solution for this. And there was a, an example of uh, like the robot deciding that um, chocolate cookies would be uh, desirable, and so planting like um, wheat for flour and um, cocoa for, you know, for chocolate in the same field and sugar beet or cane uh, they, you know, in the same field so that you basically had a field of chocolate cookies. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think these three plants grow in the same soil or in the same weather. Um, but yeah, the idea that you would have a, uh, a, a robot or like you know, sort of a digital system that was uh, monitoring your farm and then optimizing or even automating the work that is done to improve the yield of that farm is you know is a reasonable uh, goal whether or not that specific end goal of a chocolate cookie field is uh, at all plausible the high level the abstract goal of uh, improving agriculture or right, improving the efficiency of agriculture through computers is one that you could imagine and like four decades on from that program which is probably we're probably in the 40th anniversary now as i said it started broadcasting february 1982 it is now march 2022 so you know we may be coming up to the 40th anniversary of the last episode being aired or something like that um in those four decades we now have tractors that will automatically um, measure the soil quality as they are working and will report that you know, via, obviously, a subscription cloud service. Not, you know, they couldn't just send it to a terminal on the tractor. No, that would be too easy. Uh, you have to charge someone uh, to look at their data in a browser somewhere else. But you know, small bits of this uh, future exist, but not all of it. So what I'm saying is that, you know, agriculture is one of those um, practices, one of those fields of endeavour where computerization still has a lot of opportunity. And so that means that if you ask, like, you know, someone who runs a uh, an agriculture business, they may not be a farmer, they may be a farmer, but they may just be a landlord who hires a farmer, or they may be um, someone who like rents out combine harvesters, or they may be someone who um, like makes flour or something. And you say, right, how can computers help you? They won't know. They won't necessarily know what the things can do. And so when you show them, uh, you know, when when you say like, let's uh, work on a thing together and they come up with some idea and you know that may or may not be plausible but you go away and work on it and you come back 
they look at it and well maybe it isn't plausible or yeah maybe it is it doesn't isn't going to work the way that they need it to work because this new system this new transformational system is going to be deployed within the context of what they currently do you know, you can eventually sort of migrate away to some different way of working but it's going to be gradual it's going to be incremental or possibly what you've shown them is what they want and it is going to help and now they understand how it can help in this context it's going to help them in some other context as well so the way you deal with this is that you say okay well um i understand that you know having this thing now enables these other possibilities that's great we can work with you on that um changing this thing in that way will take some time and it will cost some money to do and now let's have a discussion about what that cost is going to be what that time is going to be where else i could be spending my time so introducing the idea of opportunity cost and then saying let's agree whether or not this is something we want to do and if it is then whether it's something we want to do now or something we want to remember to come back to later so yeah this is kind of the happy path if you like for responding to change you've done a thing and they said okay yeah i can see how that helps and now i can see how this other thing would help you know you're continuing the helpful relationship that is a success that shouldn't be seen as customers fickle and always changes their mind that should be seen as customers a good person to work with uh, because they always see where the opportunities are and they're always looking for uh, new um, opportunities new chances to improve things new ways in which we can work together to improve what they do so the flip side, uh, which is again a benefit, it's again a good way of working, is when you give the thing you've been working on to, with the customer, you, you agreed, uh, here is what we're going to do. You give it to the customer and they say, oh, I need you to solve this completely unrelated problem. You know, and the, the change is not so much um, an iteration as it is like a handbrake turn and pointing in a different way. That can be a good thing. And why is it a good thing? It means that you have now solved that problem for them. They no longer have that problem. Remember this thing about the software system being iterative. That when you go to a customer that you haven't worked for, they haven't got your software. A couple of weeks later, you give them the first version of the software. You've now changed the customer because they are no longer a customer who doesn't have access to your software they're a customer who has access to version one of your software and that's a very different person they now have some automation of some of their processes they now have a software system that they work with this gives them some solved problems and some new problems now ideally those new problems are opportunities because they are things that they couldn't even think about before because they were too busy doing something else and now that you've taken that pain away from them now that you've taken that work away from them they're now freed up to think about this other problem that they had all along but were swamped and didn't notice this is a good thing uh, so it really nothing to be done here keep up the good work don't blame the customer for like constantly changing their mind and being capricious 
Uh, think of it as them working with you, accepting the work that you're doing and adopting it and then finding new opportunities again. Now, the one that we often think about when we think of the explicit phrase responding to change over following a plan from the Agile Manifesto is that in the time since you last spoke to the customer, things have changed for them. You know, maybe a competitor has offered them some software that does the thing that you uh, want to do, or maybe the competitor has offered them some software that you haven't offered them and that actually sounds really good or maybe their competitor is offering a capability that you uh, weren't going to provide in your software or maybe like people have stopped paying for the thing that you were going to build the software to um, enable now if all those things have happened or if any one of those things has happened yeah the first question you have to ask is well how long ago did you last discuss this with the customer you know the um extreme programming idea uh, and indeed uh, one of the principles of the agile manifesto is that the customer and the technologists work alongside each other every day so uh yeah here's question one like the uh, competitor has introduced a new feature how long was it since you last spoke to the customer about whether or not that feature was a priority because if it was the day before and this competitor has like come up with a thing they evidently didn't come up with that in one day they have been working on that and have released it uh, which suggests that it has been important in that market for long enough for them to come up with an implementation that is worth sharing with the market so then question two, what was the value of that interaction you had with the customer and how can you improve its value? So how long ago did you last speak and how can you get more meaning out of that interaction? And then the big one that is really, uh, I think, the cause of a lot of frustration uh, and is the one that shows you know, more of a divergence than the uh, one where like just the world has changed for the customer is that you and the customer had different understanding of what you were doing that you agreed on what the next feature was you agreed on what the priorities were you agreed on what the scope was on what your software was going to do and then you come back and they say oh well i didn't mean that i meant this um whoops so this is a thing where more frequent interaction and more meaningful interaction also can help. This is a situation where you know showing something like a low fidelity prototype on day one, when they say, I need to be able to uh, reticulate splines uh, in the browser while connecting to a MongoDB with 12 exabytes of uh, cat GIFs in it. You can you know, get out your uh, whiteboard pens or you can like get out some post-it notes you can just uh, mock up a screen uh, on a whiteboard or on a you know, spare piece of wall you can say so what i understand is that you want to be able to do this there'll be a button here and a list of these uh, cat gifs and then I press this button and it reticulates the splines um, and then we go to this screen where we see uh, these the results of that 
uh, thing. And you can have that discussion. You can sort of role-play the existence of the computer system. Now, go back to the 1990s here. There was this idea of rapid application development where you would build the prototype like out of some sort of software builder like uh, you know, Next Step Interface Builder or um, Ball and Delphi. Uh, Delphi, if you're American, I suppose. Um, I don't know whether it's Delphi or Delphi uh, in Greek. But then that doesn't really matter, does it? Because, you know, uh, I don't think Greek people say Kubernetes either. Anyway, that's a bit of a digression. Um, there was this idea of rapid application development where you just, like, put the prototype together, put the user interface together as a functioning user interface, as a you know tool that you could run on the computer, and then get agreement with the customer that what you needed to do was, like, to colour in all of the code that goes behind that, you know, so that, that button doesn't just act as a button. It does a thing when the button is pressed. Um, that's still a tool that we have in our toolbox today. If you're using some sort of declarative UI package like um, React or Swift UI or um, like XAML or whatever, you can build a UI that works as an executable prototype and give that to the customer and say, right, are, are these the things you want to see? Is this the information you want available? Are these the actions you want to be able to perform? Uh, and get agreement on that before you implement all of the software. It doesn't have to be the Google Design Sprint style uh, super lo-fi post-it notes and pieces of string. It can be like the working software without too much effort. The other thing that can help here is to have a ubiquitous language. So this is an idea uh, from Eric Evans' book, Domain Driven Design, and it's one that uh, model-driven developers use uh, quite a lot as well. The ubiquitous language is a sort of business glossary, if you like. It's a or dictionary. It's a collection of terms that you use ubiquitously. You use it throughout the project and throughout the software. So uh, what does reticulation mean in this context? You know, they want to reticulate the splines. What do the customer, what does the customer mean by the word reticulation? Um, how much reticulation needs to be done before a spline is considered reticulated? And you use, you define this term and you agree what this term means, and then you use it in your conversation with the customer. So here's my acceptance test that shows that when I press this button, we see the pre-reticulated splines uh, in on the page. Um, you use it in the software. Uh, so my reticulate method is going to implement this activity that we have agreed is called reticulation. You use it in your uh, tests, you use it in your documentation, you use it everywhere. And then, when there is this shared agreement, there is also a shared agreement even outside of everybody's domain of expertise. So a software person can see what the marketing literature says about reticulating splines and can understand that this marketing literature is accurate because reticulation is used in the same way that reticulation is used in the F-sharp source code. Conversely, you know, the um, communications manager could look at the source code 
and see that they are correct to talk about uh, reticulation in the marketing materials because in the F-sharp they can see that there is a method for doing reticulation of splines. <clears throat> and finally, and like this is really what the um, communication over the like low fidelity or even rad style prototypes, uh, the frequent communication and the ubiquitous language are all actually leading to, whether you like it or not, they are leading to a written specification. Now that specification may be evolved just in time so that the thing that is specified and <clears throat> the thing that is the specification appear at you know, roughly the same time, but it is a necessary way, a necessary tool that resolves these questions of differences of understanding and particularly if you find that this is something that is happening frequently that you and your customer disagree on what the software was supposed to do even though you agreed in the past on what it was going to do you need more written specification i talked about this in a previous episode called comprehensive documentation in episode 47 you need to agree what it is that you are going to do and you need to agree what it is that you have done and ideally that agreement is written because at some point it is going to become the basis of a payment dispute between you and your client because at some point they're going to say I wanted to do this, even if you work in the same company and like there's no actual money changing hands, they're going to say, you did this, I told you to do this, you have wasted my time. And the reason they're going to do this is because of this different understanding of what it is that you're going to do. And the way that you... Uh, firstly avoid that problem and secondly if you are bad at avoiding the problem then address the problem is to say here is the agreement that we both came up with about what it was that we were going to do now as i say this can be just in time it still needs to be more detailed than some people give it credit so uh, you know, if you look at the book on uh, user stories, uh, for example, user stories applied by Mike Cohn, you look at this book, and yes, the user stories are written as a single sentence on the front of an index card. But you know what happens if you write a single sentence on the front of an index card? You haven't used the back. You turn the back over and you capture all of the details about what the sentence on the front actually means. The user story is a placeholder for a conversation. You have the conversation, you record the outcome of the conversation, just like you record the minutes of any other meeting. And then you refer back to those, the, to those minutes, to those records, and you ensure that the thing you built is the thing that was agreed as set out in that recording of that ag agreement. So, okay, you don't need the massive multi-page uh, use cases of, say, the 1990s-era uh, object-oriented uh, analysis and design approach. But it may be the case that you actually end up with that much documentation 
by the time you have like filled in all of those details, had all of those conversations are recorded, all of those like nuances that aren't captured in the single sentence on the front of the index card. So I hope that this uh, discussion of responding to change has been useful. I'd love to hear if you have uh, other experiences, if you have found other ways to cope with um, these ideas of changing requirements or other root causes that weren't explored in this episode. You can, of course, always email me. Uh, that is uh, grahamlee at acm.org. You can find me on Twitter, iwasleeg, I-W-A-S-L-E-E-G. Uh, don't forget, uh, I also blog and uh, you know, write various things on software engineering and also uh, read uh, plenty of other material about software engineering and um, share my notes on those as well at my newsletter which is at SICPAS, as in the Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programmers, S-I-C-P-E-R-S dot curated dot C-O. Uh, and if you um, enjoy all of this material and would like to um, support me financially to help me produce more of it, uh, you can do so uh, by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash I-A-M-L-E-E-G. I-A-M-L-E-E-G. Thank you very much for listening. I will talk to you again soon.